Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today I'm going to talk to Wes Olson about his book on the history of the buffalo, a keystone mammal that was critical to the human history, not only of the Great Plains, but really an essential ingredient to pemmican, which is the main food supply, the fur trade in the north, well above the Great Plains. For 32 years, Wes Olson was a warden in the Canadian National Park System. He grew up in the foothills of Western Alberta and currently lives on an acreage of forest and beaver ponds beside Elk Island National Park in central Alberta. He is the co-author with his wife, Joanne Janelle, of The Ecological Buffalo on the Trail of a Keystone Species, published by the University of Regina Press in 2022. Wes, it's a real pleasure to have you with us today. Well, thanks for the invitation. It's a treat for me to be here. You and your wife have spent many years studying and photographing bison. I, I would like you to describe the identifying features of this particular mammal for our audience, many of whom probably have not come very close to a buffalo in their life. And tell us a little bit what it's like to be up very close to one of these very large animals. I'm sure you've had that experience many times. Yes, I have. Um, you know, countless times. Um, you know, bison are, are the largest uh, North American land mammal. There's two types, plains and wood bison. And the wood bison are considerably larger than the plains bison. Plains bison are the ones that most people are familiar with. Um, they're, they're tall. Or on average, an adult male would be just under two meters in height. Uh, and they'll weigh approximately 900 to 1,000 kilograms in body size. Uh, they're massively front-heavy, uh, very large heads, uh, big hump. During the summer months, they're virtually hairless from sort of the mid-ribcage towards the hips um, with the big, uh, thick cape on the front end. Now, in this podcast, we explore the human history of this country, and we tend to ignore the living ecosystem in which we're all situated as part of this history. You described three types of buffalo. You've already talked about two of them, the plains bison and the woods bison, but there's a third category that you call the mountain bison. Could you please uh, tell us about the distribution of these three types of bison by, let's say, the 18th century? And also go back before that and tell us when scientists think the first bison appeared in North America? North American bison evolved from a species uh, that lived in Siberia, uh, right across uh, Eurasia, called the steppe bison. And that bison moved across uh, a land bridge that at uh, one time, at the end of the Pleistocene, connected the halls of the uh, North American continent with the Siberian uh, area. They walked across that Beringian land bridge down a nice free corridor into the southern North American continent. And then over time, it evolved uh, through various subspecies and species into today's modern plains and wood bison about 130,000 years ago when they first entered the lower continental United States. As the Europeans first began to move westwards from the east coast, 
They were, of course, bumping into massive herds of plains bison, numbering in the tens of thousands in each herd. And as they worked their way westward and into the Rocky Mountain chain, they began to encounter a bison that looked and behaved differently than the ones that they'd become so accustomed to. And the early explorers referred to those animals as mountain bison because they lived in a mountainous environment, often at very high altitudes. And we suspect today that the mountain bison was actually a hybrid or a cross between plains and wood bison. Plains bison, of course, lived on the Great Plains of North America, almost from the east coast west to um, the desert, dry desert southwest and north into Canada. And the wood bison lived in northern Canada. They typically didn't share space and time together uh, because they were separated geographically. But during the winter months, some plains bison would move north into the region that roughly corresponds to the North Saskatchewan River uh, here in central Alberta. And during the winter months, some wood bison would move south. So they would share space and time across that narrow band of, of land, and probably some hybridized. And those hybrids then moved westwards into the Rocky Mountain chain, and I think became um, what the early explorers referred to as mountain bison. Your distribution of the plains bison covered a vast area, much vaster than I thought. I thought they were largely restricted to what we call the Great Plains, but it went well beyond that. They went quite a ways east into North America, too. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, when Europeans first uh, moved into the New England states, for example, uh, right down to Georgia and North and South Carolinas, they bumped into bison there. Uh, they were very quickly eradicated from the eastern hardwood forest uh, states. Uh, by the probably early 1700s, there weren't very many left there. But they did uh, occupy a vast region from the uh, Florida panhandle uh, north, uh, probably as far as Pennsylvania, all the way west to the Rocky Mountains. They didn't go very far west of the Rockies, uh, mostly because uh, First Nations people living to the west of the Rocks hunted them extensively uh, when they tried to go through those mountain passes. Uh, so vast geographic range. So the way in which we normally think about bison is the fact that they they are traveling in herds and that they cover long distances. Can you describe uh, the migration patterns of the bison and the impact on the landscape when they were at their peak uh, before they were exterminated? You know, the estimates vary, but I think that's sort of a generally accepted number of these days is that at their peak, there was somewhere around 30 million plains bison in North America. Um, and they were all uh, eliminated from the landscape uh, by the mid-1880s, uh, down to 23 wild plains bison left in all of North America, hiding in the Pelican River Valley in Yellowstone National Park. But during their, their heyday, when animals were at their peak, there's, there's numerous accounts of explorers encountering these massive herds. For example, when they were surveying the Canada-U.S. border across southern Saskatchewan, uh, the survey team was trapped in their tents for 10 days while one herd of bison walked past. Uh, there were so many bison, in fact, that they had to bring their horses into the tents uh, to, so that they wouldn't get sucked up with the herd and, and carry on. A good friend of mine, his grandmother, came up the Missouri River uh, into northwestern Montana in the 1800s and uh, 
on a paddle wheeler, and, and she recounted in her diary that for 10 days, one massive herd migrated across that river. So tremendous numbers. The early explorers thought that the migration pattern was similar to what takes place on the Serengeti with a large seasonal north to south circular movement across the Great Plains. But most of the current historians think that that wasn't actually the case, that there were two types of migrations that took place. Probably the majority of the animals had a fairly small uh, home range region that they, they occupied a new well, and they moved across it in a fairly random pattern. They encountered animals that didn't have a home range, but were constantly moving over larger distances. And those herds would mix and meld and split apart and uh, reestablish um, through the course of the year with those massive summer aggregations that everybody reported uh, taking place in uh, the breeding season during July and August. So why were so many indigenous groups dependent on the buffalo before European contact? And uh, I know they used the buffalo for almost everything, but can you describe the very nature of this dependence and how it changed then after the fur trade, how it evolved through the fur trade? You know, there's the classic far side cartoon of a, a native man holding up a little squiggly bit of something and saying, I don't know what it is, but it's the only part of the buffalo we don't use. <laughs> <laughs> they did, in fact, use every part of the animal. But it varied from season to season and um, how they used it. There were times of plenty when certainly some waste took place when they couldn't consume everything that they pushed over a cliff, for example. Um, to times of, of, um, of want when the bison herds didn't return to their traditional range and people starved to death from lack of bison. But the bison provided virtually everything that they needed to survive, and not just survive, but to thrive. Uh, you know, the early accounts of people bumping into plains uh, cultures indicated that they were you know, taller, more vibrant, healthier people than anybody who lived in Europe at the time. And they, were, they had that stature, and they had that level of health because of the high-quality meat that they were consuming, because of their portable and very warm uh, teepees that they constructed out of bison hide. Uh, the bison literally provided everything that they could possibly want. And that, of course, began to change as Europeans moved westward and uh, tried to constrict First Nations and Indigenous peoples to reserves to open up the West to settlement. But the real uh, decimation began with the development of a new, well, two things. Um, for the development of a new rifle, the Sharps 50 caliber that enabled hunters to systematically slaughter bison from a distance. And then development of technology in Britain where they uh, developed a new tanning process that turned leather into a much harder, uh, stiffer product that they used uh, as belting to drive the Industrial Revolution. They couldn't meet the demand for belting leather in Europe, uh, so they quickly came to North America and began slaughtering tens of thousands or millions of bison just for leather to create belting. Was this one of the most unusual features of this uh, slaughter that began was the fact that it was, you know, one part of the buffalo was used in the industrial process 
in Europe and in industrial America, or were there other unusual features of this slaughter? We hear about, for example, killing a buffalo for their for one food product, their tongues, uh, or other stories similar to that. What were some of the unusual aspects of the slaughter? That varied uh, between Canada and the United States. The U.S. had a far more concentrated and verbally expressed desire to restrict Native people to reserves. Um, they had the philosophy that every dead buffalo was one less Indian on the, on the land. So they had a, the U.S. military in particular, had a very aggressive policy of removing bison from the landscape as a way of removing their First Nations dependence on the animal. It wasn't quite as pronounced in Canada, although Sir John A. Macdonald certainly supported that ethic. He did nothing to make life for First Nations in Canada a peaceful thing. But definitely there was a, there was a sportsman um, period where people would ride on the trains uh, shooting bison just for sheer sport with no attempt to salvage anything. There was the demand for tongues, as you mentioned. Uh, it's a delicacy and uh, millions of bison tongues were harvested with no attempt to salvage anything else off the animal. And then the, uh, the pelt hide trade. Uh, people would slaughter literally millions of bison uh, just for their hides. Um, both for the to drive the Industrial Revolution, um, but for military belting and boots to robes for uh, people to cover themselves with when they were on sleighs. The Northwest Mounted Police uh, wore buffalo hide coats uh, when they were riding during the winter months. So a wide variety of reasons for the slaughter, but probably the, the biggest one that accounted for the most number of animals was the Industrial Revolution. And you describe exactly when this occurred, uh, you know, the, the sort of the final slaughter of the buffalo uh, in the late 19th century. Uh, and this connection with uh, humans in the sense of the indigenous people um, having to go to reserves and reservations in the United States – uh, not being able to survive on the open plains in the way that they used to. So what did the Great Plains look like after the Great Slaughter, immediately after the Great Slaughter? Was it depopulated? Oh, it was devastated. Um, you know, it was a combination of vast numbers of bison, but there were also, at the same time, an estimates of 36 million pronghorn antelope, um, another 30 million wapiti or elk, sharing that landscape with 30 million bison. And they were all extirpated, completely removed from that landscape in a period of less than 30 years, probably, during the, the peak of the slaughter period. So by the time the 1880 came along, it was a desolate landscape. Uh, and that coincided with the introduction of European diseases, you know, smallpox and measles, to the native population. And they also were decimated. So not only was the landscape barren of, of large ungulates, it was barren of people, either because they died on the landscape or they were forced onto smaller and smaller reserves. Frederick Vermeer painted a painting, it's called The Last Buffalo, and it's a desolate, barren, open prairie scene with one dead bison on it and a flock of ravens flying over. And that, to me, is pretty typical, I think, of what that landscape looked like 
uh, at the end of the Great Bison Slaughter. You describe how cattle ranching really replaced uh, the bison on the plains. Can you describe the sort of the evolution of that industry, the growth of open range cattle up to the killer winter of 1886-87? You know, as Europeans pressed westward, they, they developed three different rail lines that moved from the east to the west. And those rail lines split the massive bison populations into three three groups, the southern herd, the Great Plains herd, and the northern herd. The southern herd disappeared fairly quickly from over-exploitation, opening up the, the southern parts of the United States to cattle ranching. Uh, and it was primarily uh, Texas Longhorns initially that uh, occupied Texas and Oklahoma and the southern states. And then as the Great Plains herd, the middle population was depleted, that began the period of uh, the great cattle drives that you know, the old TV show Rawhide, where they spent months traveling, trailing herds north from Texas to, into to the railheads in, in Canada and the, the United States. The Chisholm Trail, for example, began in Texas and ended in southern Saskatchewan. A little place called Valmarie was one of the trailheads. So as the bison population was removed from the landscape and as First Nations were removed from the landscape, settlers began to appear and bring their herds uh, but it was these massive cattle drives north that brought literally millions of uh, Texas Longhorns um, that had thrived during the U.S. Civil War northwards onto the Great Plains. And there was a, probably a, a 10 to 15 year period subsequent to the last bison and to the arrival of the first uh, cattle in, in large numbers where the landscape was devoid of um, large mammals like bison or, or cattle. But once the cattle were established on that landscape, they, in some sense, became a surrogate for bison from an ecosystem point of view, because they then provided food for all the you know, remaining wolves and grizzly bears on, on the Great Plains. They certainly provided the bulk of the meat for First Nations on reserves, and in some ways provided the, the keystone ecological role that bison once provided. And as you mentioned, that all came to a crashing end in the winter of 1886-87, when literally millions of cattle died uh, due to severe weather conditions that winter. There was a rebound, and the, the era of uh, the great cattle barons became reestablished. And once again, there were millions of free-ranging cattle across the northern plains. But that again came crashing to an end in 1896-97, with a, an even worse blizzard that wiped out tens of millions of cattle. Once again, those cattle uh, repopulated the Northern Plains and uh, did fairly well until the winter of 1906-07, when a, an even worse blizzard wiped out everything. And that was the change in management from the open range era with no fences and, and free-ranging cattle to the point where cattle ranchers then decided, well, we can't do this anymore. We have to bring our cattle home and feed them during the winter months. And that's the way North America has been since the winter of 1906-07. Now, you describe these climatic events, these uh, a succession of killer winters about once every decade from 1886 to uh, 1900s. Would these have been climatic events that bison could have survived? Bison definitely would have had a much higher survival rate than cattle. Um, there was a nasty winter, uh, winter of 2013 in, in Montana where again, tens of thousands of cattle died on the open range, uh, 
but bison also died. The storms were so intense that uh, bison, because they have this tendency to face into a, a storm, uh, died of pneumonia because their nostrils and lungs became filled with moisture from the blizzard. So while they're incredibly resilient to extremes in temperature and environments, um, they still can suffer mortalities uh, during really, really nasty winters. So what were some of the longer-term consequences for human history in the aftermath of this great slaughter of bison? Well, obviously, um, we went from an environment with dominated by the North America's largest land mammal to one where it's now dominated by people and our livestock. I'd like to think that at some point we could reestablish some of those larger herds on Great Plains. Uh, and in some sense, they are being reestablished on farms and ranches and in conservation herds. But the glory days of massive herds and those free-ranging populations are, are long, long gone. You use the term keystone quite often in your book. What does this mean applied uh, to any species? Mm-hmm. You know, the term keystone dates back, or the use of the, uh, the keystone, dates back to China literally thousands of years ago when they first began to build stone arches. Um, If you look at a stone arch in a church or a stone window, for example, right at the top of the arch, there's a wedge-shaped stone. That's the last stone to be installed when they're building the arch. And it's the key. It's the keystone that ties that whole arch together. And if you take that keystone out, the arch and the whole structure collapses. So that term has been applied to wildlife ecology because there are species that tie the whole ecosystem together. Uh, Bison are one, uh, beaver are another one. Uh, Or if you take that keystone species out of the ecosystem, the ecosystem collapses, uh, just like a stone arch would collapse. In your chapter on rewilding, you describe the efforts to return bison to their ancestral lands. So... How did we go about doing this in Canada, encouraging the growth, the rebirth, if you like, of bison populations in this country? Um, Elk Island National Park, where I worked for 24 years, is the baby factory for bison in in Canada. Uh, The park has both populations of plains and wood bison. And since the 1960s have been using bison to reestablish free-ranging wild populations across their former historic ranges. Uh, and now, we, as a result, we've got free-ranging wild wood bison uh, in uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, B.C., Ontario, Yukon, not Ontario, um, Northwest Territories, uh, and they're doing very well. Plains bison, on the other hand, because they, they occupied uh, the southern parts of western Canada, and that's now highly populated. It's grain fields rather than native prairies. But where possible... Uh, Parks Canada is re-establishing Plains Bison on national parks. Uh, Grasslands National Park, for example, in Saskatchewan, has a thriving Plains Bison herd now. And First Nations are very rapidly embracing the return of Plains Bison to their lands. Every single time that a park like Elk Island or or Grasslands has surplus bison uh, and the need to remove them to maintain the health of those parks, Uh, They strive to put those bison on First Nations lands uh, in Canada and in the United States. So there is hope that we can put bison back in in large numbers on the Great Plains once again, but it'll never be to the extent that it once was. Now, are these, genetically speaking, exactly the same bison that existed before the Great Slaughter? Yes, they are. 
And what's been the impact of all of these rewilding efforts? Well, for First Nations, it's it's huge. Um, it reestablishes not just their uh, spiritual and cultural connection to bison, but it, it helps them develop a food source that's much healthier than uh, they sometimes have been uh, forced to consume. Uh, bison is one of the healthiest red meats available to people, and it certainly contributed to the, the health and stature of Native people historically. Yeah, in addition to the cultural relinkage or rematriation of bison onto First Nations lands, certainly there's an ecological uh, impact as well. Uh, for example, there's 384 mammal species, terrestrial mammal species, that bison once shared space and time with. Uh, they all interconnected, interrelated with each other. Uh, now that we're putting bison back on, on these ecosystems, all of those ancestral relationships with a myriad of species are being reestablished. Um, and it's hugely beneficial to the um, recovery of a vast number of endangered species in Canada, especially grassland songbirds. Well, Wes, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Well, it was sure my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. My guest today was Wes Olson. He's the co-author with Joanne Janelle of The Ecological Buffalo on the Trail of a Keystone Species. This book was published by the University of Regina Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. And if you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. Podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. And we also want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, and the University of Ottawa Press, as well as today's press, the University of Regina Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on November 24th, 2022. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt, and it is supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team, who also support the Champlain Society. Mm-hmm.